Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. This Saturday is October 1st, and it'll be officially three years since we started Devoted. So that's pretty amazing that we've lasted for three years. We've made it through a pandemic and, and things like that. So that's exciting. I, I thank you guys for that. It's, you guys have been a huge blessing to me over the three years, and um, I'm super thankful for you. So next week we'll have something special to commemorate that. Um, one last thing uh, I, I want to mention and, and really kind of challenge you guys with. Uh, it's something that I'm probably going to end up challenging the, the whole church body with. Um, most of you guys know that I'm now leading a, a ministry here called Salt and Light. And so I've been thinking a lot about you know, different things and, and some of it political things and whatnot. And looking at a lot of that stuff, and um, in some ways that could be kind of discouraging. I'm sure you guys have figured that out, you know? You know, just being confronted with all the godless things that are happening in our country. Uh, but, but one thing really has grieved me especially. Yeah, did you guys see what our, our governor did? You know, he spent money and put up billboards throughout the country in different states. Uh encouraging people to come to California and kill their babies. And, and, and you would think that's bad enough, right? But then he had the audacity on, on that billboard to quote uh, our Lord Jesus Christ saying, uh, we need to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. So in his estimation, the way that we love our neighbors as we love ourselves is by bringing people here to kill their babies. So. I guess he says, we like killing babies, so, you know, that's what we love, and we want to help you love doing that, too. I, I, I don't know, but it is grievous, and, um, and, and, and the more I think about it, I, I really just, I feel sad for that guy. You know, it, it's obvious that God's judgment's upon our country, and, and not just on, on our country, but on individuals, too, you know, and, and this guy obviously doesn't know the Lord, you know, and um, to be able to say something like that. And so I want to issue kind of a challenge to us, and I want to challenge all of us uh, every day to make a point to pray for the salvation of Joe Biden and Gavin Newsom. Um, and, and, and I encourage you to do this, to pick a time of the day, like like a, like a legit time, say, you know, 4.30 p.m. or something, pick a time where you're not typically busy, you're not at work, and set an alarm on your phone. And when that alarm goes off, just start praying. Start pleading with God that God would be merciful to Joe Biden, that God would be merciful to Gavin Newsom. And I don't know what God's going to do with those prayers. I don't know if God's going to save Joe Biden, if he's going to save Gavin Newsom. That, that's up to the Lord. Um, but I know that we'll be being faithful with what God's called us to do. In First Timothy chapter two, it tells us to, to pray for all people, especially rulers, kings, you know, so that we can live a tranquil life. And God desires all people to come to be saved, you know, and um, we could be faithful with that, you know. Um, it, it's kind of a unique thing the more I think about it because these are our God-given authority. This this ruler that God's given us that, to rule over us and um, really it's supposedly to be a blessing to us. 
I, I pray that we would see you in it. We'd see uh, the type of works that you want us to have and, uh, and, and that we'd press into that and we would uh, you know, live to please you and, and, and to, be thank- to, to demonstrate our thankfulness for our salvation through our works. But we give you tonight, Lord, be your, be your teacher, speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 8, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You know, if you flip your outline over on the back here, I, I have a copy of um, the, the article of the confession. And you'll look at it and you'll realize that this is uh, the longest of all the doctrines so far that has been presented to us throughout this confession. And, uh, and, and there's good reason for that. Right? Number one, it's the importance of the doctrine of good works. Good works are absolutely essential for the believer. They bring a a validity to the believer's faith, James says. In James chapter 2, verses 18 through 20, James writes, But someone may say, well, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith uh, without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? So if we're going to have genuine faith, uh, works is absolutely an essential part of that, James is saying. Uh, The Westminster Divines put much detail into the doctrine of good works because of the amount of controversy and disagreement that has been uh, around this doctrine throughout the ages of church history. Throughout church history, there's uh, been such a debate about the nature of works. And this is especially true concerning Catholic Church and their view of works and the the Protestants' view. Uh, The debate between these two camps uh, and their view of this doctrine was really what was at the heart of the Reformation. Martin Luther... uh, Went and he was a Catholic monk. He was a part of the Catholic Church. And he really started reading his Bible and examining it and came to the conclusion that, that the righteous are justified by faith. And, and, and started examining the Bible and, and, and seeing things that were wrong with what the Catholic Church was doing and what the Catholic Church was teaching. And, and so he wrote down these 95 theses, 95 things that the Catholic Church was doing wrong. And he went and nailed it to the door in Wittenberg, Germany, and that ended up sparking the Protestant Reformation. He didn't want to cause a Reformation. He wanted to really reform Catholicism, but they didn't take his critique very well, and they actually kicked him out they, uh, of the Catholic Church, and that's when this Protestant Reformation started. But at the heart of this was really the doctrine of works, because the Catholic Church taught that you had to do meritorious works to, to get justified. You had to have enough good works to, 
you know, to, to fill up this reservoir of merit for them to be able to say that you are justified, that you are saved, to be have a right relationship with God. And the Protestants are saying, no, not at all. There's no amount of works that somebody could do to merit salvation. We could only be justified by faith in Christ. Our works then don't earn us a salvation. It doesn't earn us a right standing with God. No, it evidences that we have a right standing with God. The evidence that we've been regenerate, that we've been born again, that we've been brought into the family of God, is that we produce works that evidence that. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 again says, For grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's very clear. It's not by works that we're going to be made right by God. For the Roman Catholic, works are a part of justification. For us Protestants, good works are a part of our sanctification. Uh, The Lexham Survey of Theology defines good works this way. Good works refer to human actions undertaken in obedience to God and in conformity with his will. The Erdman's Bible Dictionary says this, acts of God and deeds of humankind in keeping God's commandments. You know, one of the key elements or or key ways that we could perform good works is just to keep or obey God's word. Simply being obedient to the commandments that God has given us, the word that God has given us, is a way to produce good works. The more that we read and apply the Bible to our lives, the more good works we're going to see in our wake, is the idea. So it's absolutely essential, though, that we see that faith and works go together. We'll see that we can't truly have one without the other. So our first feeling is faith and works go hand in hand. In James chapter 2, again, verses 14 through 18, James says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for the body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You know, doctrine and doing are like two chemical compounds in salt. Uh, And and if you look at the two chemical compounds in salt, both of them are poisons, right? Sodium and chlorine, they're both poisons. And if you ingest either one of them by themselves, you're going to die. But if you combine them properly, you have sodium chloride, which is common table salt that gives flavor to our food and indeed life and health to our bodies. And so it is with Faith and works, they're, they're inseparable. You need them both. See, if you have just faith, well, that's legalism. If you have just works, that's liberalism. And, and both of them are 100% deadly by themselves. We need the balance. We need faith and works. 
See, the Pharisees, they were all about faith. They knew the right thing. They, they, they said the right thing. They knew their Bible. But they had no love for man. Jesus would say things to them like, you know, you tie the mint and cumin. You, you know, you, you, you follow the little minutest details of the law. But, but you, you miss the, the weightier matters of the law, like, like justice and mercy. Haven't you read that God desires justice and not sacrifice? He desires mercy and not sacrifice? You see, that's what happens when it all becomes just head knowledge and, and theology and, 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 and just Bible. And there's no works to back it up. Right? We, we, we become legalistics. We separate from everybody. We join our little holy huddle like the Pharisees did. But the opposite could be true, too, right? Where you could go and just make it all about works, right? And say, oh, it doesn't really matter what you believe. We just want to do nice things. We want to go and build wells for people that need water. And we want to clothe the homeless and, and all of this. We just want to do good words, social justice issues and social issues. And that's what the church needs to be doing. And, and those things are good. But if we don't have right doctrine, how's anybody going to get saved? How's the gospel going to get preached? How are people going to believe? So, so we need both. We need doctrine and works. A man who claims to have faith without works is like a man who puts all his effort into a building the foundation of a house, but never builds anything on it. A man who displays great works but claims no faith is like a man who builds a house on sin, without any foundation, right? There, there's a problem on both sides. Now let's take a look at, at some of the qualities of good works. What do good works look like? What makes a good work a good work? So for letter A, find uh, the word nature. We're going to look at the nature of good work. And then for number one, fill in the word justification. Justification needs to precede good works. Justification needs to come before good works. I talked about a handful of weeks ago how not all of the doctrines that are arranged in the Westminster Confession are actually important that we have them necessarily in the right order. It's called the, the order of salutis, the, the order of salvation. Uh, I mentioned that there's some differences of opinion regarding the order of some of these things, like faith and regeneration, right? Do we get regenerated because we exercise faith, or do we exercise faith and then the regeneration happens? You know, is regeneration a product of our faith, or is our faith produced from our regeneration? There's this debate in theology about that. And that doesn't really matter. I think they both happen at the same time. But what matters is that we know that both of those things have happened to us. We know that we've exercised saving faith. We know that we've been regenerate, that God has come and, and made his dwelling place inside of us. So it's, it's not necessarily important for us to know some of the order of these things. But when it comes to this, it's absolutely important that we get the order right. And, and it's justification and then good works. You see, because if we put good works first, before justification, we're going to imply some things and come into two huge theological no-nos. We're, we're going to have some serious theological problems. 
the first thing that's going to happen is we're going to deny the reality of original sin. We're going to deny our, our depraved nature with all those that are in Adam. Psalm 14 and Paul's quotation of it in uh, Romans chapter 3 makes it clear that there's no one who does good. No one. The unregenerate does does nothing good, nothing that can commend themselves to God. Romans 3.12 says this, All have turned aside. Together they've all become useless. There's no one who does good. There's not even one. So if faith, or if works come before justification, we would have a contradiction there, right? The Bible would be wrong. The Bible pictures the unregenerate as dead. Can dead people do anything, much less good works or good deeds? Paul says in, in Ephesians 2, 1, that you're dead in your trespasses and sins. You know, when was the last time you saw a dead person performing a good deed? So if we put good works ahead of justification, we deny the fallen nature of man. But also, number two, we're going to create a works-based salvation. And this is what all the religions in the world do. You know, uh, I like to do evangelism. I go, like to go out, talk to people about how they think they're going to go to heaven, how they think that we get right with God, what you have to do to be saved, asking them questions like that. And just about every single person that I talk to answers these questions the same way. I'm going to go to heaven because I'm a good person. Right? I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not as bad as some other people. Right? And, and that's because that's what all the religions of the world teach. They basically have this idea that one day you're going to stand before God and God's going to take all your good deeds and he's going to put them on one side of this giant scale and then he's going to take all your sins or your evil deeds and put them on this side of the scale and whichever side wins out, you know, that that's what's going to happen. Can I tell you something? That's what I call doo-doo religion. And it's 100% doo-doo. It really is. Don't step in it. Don't buy that for one second. If we really believe the scripture, it wouldn't work anyways. Because there wouldn't be any good deeds to put on one side of it. It would just be all bad deeds. right? So we don't want to fall into that trap. The truth is, when Jesus died on the cross, he said, Tetelestai. It is finished. He did the work of salvation and not us. So we work for, uh, we don't work for faith, but we work from faith. We don't work to earn our salvation, but we work to evidence the salvation God gave us based on Christ's merit. We've talked about the the imputed righteousness, right? Uh, The way that we're able to be right before God is through the imputed righteousness of Christ. In, in John 16, Jesus, he's given the disciples this upper room discourse. Uh, it's the night that he's going to be arrested. He's really giving them his last will and testament. And he tells them this. He says that when the Holy Spirit comes, the helper, he's going to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. In sin because they didn't believe in me. And in righteousness because I ascend to the Father. And in judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. So it's sin because they didn't believe in me. And righteousness because I ascended the Father. What does he mean by that? 
Well, Jesus' ascension establishes what the standard is to be able to be in God's presence. And it's absolute perfection. It's 100% a perfect life. And, and, and Jesus lived that and, and ascended into the Father. Now, there's a problem, right? Because none of us have that type of righteousness. None of us have lived a perfect life. None of us have the merit on our own to be able to go into the presence of God. So, God made a way that he's able to impute or credit Christ's righteousness to our account by faith. In 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 21, it says, He who knew no sin became sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Right? God imputed our sin to Christ and imputed Christ's righteousness to us. And so now we're able to meet that righteous standard to be in God's presence. So, so it's, it's not about our merit that's going to earn our justification. It's about Jesus' merit. And we're justified by faith and then accredited with his merit. In Romans 10, verses 6 through 10, Paul says, But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart you will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But these are works. These are things that, that people have to do, right? You're going to ascend and bring Christ down. That would be a work. Or, or, or go into the abyss and bring Christ up. That's something that you have to do. But Paul goes on to say, but what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. It's not about works. It's about faith. Right? It's by grace that we've been saved. Through faith. It's a gift of God. Not of works. So it's important that we remember that saving faith must come before good works. Point number two is God defines what a good work is. So, so fill in the word God. You know, there's many things that our culture deems to be a good work. Uh, and some of these might be considered good under the right circumstances, but others like uh, virtue signaling of the social justice movement are clearly not the kind of works that God would deem good. Biblically, there's really two qualifications to know if a work is a good work or a good deed in God's eyes. I would have said three qualifications, but the first one uh, isn't true of the individual, or if it isn't true of the individual, the other two won't be also, right? So, so the other two build off of this first one. In other words, the, the three evidences are contingent on the individual being a Christian, as we'll see uh, in point four of uh, this work, right? So, so there's, there's really two works. If you're, if you're not a Christian, the other two, these two works aren't going to apply to you either way, right? But the, the first qualification to be a good work is 
it must be done in conformity to the revealed will of God. What we're doing has to be uh, in, in response to the revealed will of God. Romans 14.23 says, Whatever is not done of faith is, is sin. This begs the question, what is faith? Faith is the ability to hear God speak and respond appropriately. Or we need to hear God speak. That's the revealed will of God. We get that from the Bible. And we need to respond appropriately. That's working in conformity to God's will. Right? So, it, 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 so the first qualification is, uh, where has God revealed this in his will for you to do this? Where, where has he said that in the Bible? God's not going to contradict the Bible. He's not going to tell you to do something that contradicts something that he told you not to do. Qualification number two, our work must spring forth from a good conscience. It's not just what we do that matters. It's also the motives we have for doing what we do. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, Paul says this, For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. So why are we doing these works? Are we doing them for selfish motives? Are we doing it so we can get something out of it? then it's not a good work. A work is only a good work if it's done for the purpose of glorifying God. You know, we need to work for the purpose of making God known and putting the character of God on display. That's what a good work is. In Matthew 5.16, Jesus says, Let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Number three, the only truly good work belongs to Christ. Fill in the word Christ. Remember that story of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and wants to be his follower? It's in Matthew 19, Luke 19. But in Matthew 19, uh, starting in verse 16, it says, And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good. But if you wish to enter life, keep the commandments. So Jesus says only one is good. And that's God. Now he's not saying that he isn't good. What he's trying to do is lead this young man to the realization that that he's God. Right? Only God is good. This guy thinks he's good. He thinks he's a good teacher and trying to lead him to the conclusion that Jesus is actually God. But the fact is only somebody that's truly good can perform or produce truly good works. We can't produce something that's not in us, right? That that we don't have the nature to produce. Jesus says that, you know... uh, 
a, a good tree can't produce bad fruit. A bad tree can't produce good fruit, right? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And if there's only one person that's good, and it's Jesus and not us, how could we produce or perform good works? How are our works going to be accepted before God as good if his standard is perfection and we aren't perfect? Is the problem. Well, the answer is, is that we are in Christ, so our works are perfected through Christ. You see, any failure and adequacy we might have gets perfected through Christ, so we are accepted by God. This is why it's dumb not to try something new when God is calling you to do something. If we're hearing from God and God's saying, hey, go and try this new ministry or go and share your faith with this person or go and love on your neighbor and you're like, God, I don't know, I'm shy and I've never really met them. Yeah, I'm just I'm just not going to do it. Or, you know what, I've never done that before. I'm probably not going to be very good at it. Well, if we hear from God and he's telling us to do it and we go and do it to the best of our ability, and we do it for the glory of God, our inadequacy and our messed up work that comes out of it is going to be perfected in Christ, and it's going to be received to God, and we're going to be rewarded for it. But the truth of the matter is the unregenerate cannot perform good works. In Romans 8, 6-8, Paul writes, For the mind of Set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it doesn't subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Right, so the unregenerate, the, the unsaved person, there's nothing that they could do to actually please God. There's no work that they could do that would be accepted by God as a good work. You got to remember that only Christ performed truly good works. Right? He, he actually fulfilled the covenant of works. The, 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 the original covenant that was given to Adam and Eve, right? It said, hey, eat from all the trees of the garden. Just don't eat from the no- tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They had one work to perform, and they couldn't do that. They, they fell in that. And so God was gracious, and he created what we call the covenant of grace. And, and, and he said, hey, you know what, this is what it is, that I'll provide a substitute. He'll fulfill the covenant of works. And then if you have faith and you put your trust in him, the covenant, his merit fulfilling the covenant of works will be imputed to you. And Jesus fulfilled that. So only his works are good. Even our works as Christians aren't perfected. They're not perfect, but they're perfected in Christ. You see, we still have a sin nature. I'm still battling my flesh. I'm still doing things that I don't want to do. And the fact of the matter is, is even the the most righteous deed I do, the the best thing that I do in this life, it's still going to be, to some degree, affected by sin. It's not going to be perfect. But because I'm in Christ, God's going to receive it as a good work and count it as a good work, and reward me for it as a good work. Point number four, our good works are really Christ working in us, 
through the Holy Spirit. Our good works are really Christ working in us through the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts begins this way. It says, this first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up into heaven. After he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. This first account, this is the Gospel of Luke. And notice he says that this Gospel of Luke that he wrote was about what Jesus began to do and to teach. Well, the book of Acts is the continuation of Jesus doing and teaching. He's just doing it through his disciples by the power of his spirit. The book of Acts can easily be called the ministry of Jesus working in his disciples through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is true of the early church, but it's equally true of us today as well. We need to remember that uh, to give Jesus the credit that he deserves. Right? Whenever we do have a good work, when we do something that honors and glorifies God, we need to remember that it's not really us performing it. It's God working in us and through us to perform these good works. That's why when we get to heaven and we go to the Bema Seat of Christ and we're going to be given crowns, crowns of righteousness, crowns of life, all, the, all these different crowns for, for our rewards. What are we going to do? We're going to turn around and throw them back at Jesus' feet and worship him because he's the one that was perfect. You know, as gloves are to a surgeon's hand, so are Christians in service to God. It's actually God's hand doing the work. We are but used by him, and therefore we have nothing to boast of. You know how ridiculous that would be if after a surgery, the, the glove of the surgeon like started thinking, wow, look at what I did. You know, I, I really stitched that person up well. That glove couldn't do anything by itself. It was only because the surgeon's hand was in it. 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Paul's saying, I worked hard. I worked harder than all the other apostles. I, I really labored for the kingdom of God. But then he says this, he says, that when I started seeing progress in my life, when I started seeing works in my life, when I started seeing like I was going somewhere, I realized it was all the grace of God working through me. That it was really Jesus working, and he deserves the credit. You know, the Bible says that God has prepared good works for us to walk into. That's Ephesians 2.10. The Bible also says that God motivates us. In Philippians 2, 12 and 13, it says that he's working in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. He's putting desires of good works in us, and then he's helping us carry those out to fulfillment. The Bible also says that God empowers us to do the work. In the upper room, Jesus says that 
he was going to send the Holy Spirit. He called the Holy Spirit the, the helper. Jesus says, through the helper, we're going to do greater works than he did. The, he, the helper will help us and he will teach us and, and all this. In other words, it's, it's God working in us and through us from start to finish, from preordaining the good works that we're going to have to giving us the helper, to empowering us to fulfill these, to giving us the desires from all of this. It, it, it all comes from God. It's God performing the good works. And then he's going to give us rewards for these good works that he performs in us. It's absolutely mind-blowing. We just have one duty, and that's to to stay connected to Jesus. As long as we're connected to Jesus, we're going to produce fruit, Jesus says. John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus says. If you want to bear fruit, you want to have good works, we need to be connected to Jesus. We've looked at some of the characteristics of good works. Now I want to turn our attention to what these good works will produce. What are going to be the effects of our good works. So let her be filling the word effects, the effects of our good works. For number one, good works adorn the gospel. Good works adorn the gospel. You have a a, a woman, right? She might uh, wear jewelry, right? It's an adornment, right? They, They don't actually make her look more, they don't make her actually more beautiful, right? The, the beauty is in who she is. But you put the adornment on and it uh, kind of highlights the beauty that she already has. It draws attention to the beauties that she already has. And, and our good works do in a, the, the same thing. It adorns the gospel message that God has implanted in us. It adorns the message that we preach. You know, one of the biggest criticisms that I hear unbelievers have for us is that we're hypocrites. They say we don't live up to what we preach. That we say one thing and do another. Remember when David uh, committed the sin with Bathsheba? What did Nathan the prophet say to him when he confronted him? He said, the enemies of God are blaspheming God because of you. Romans 2, 17 through 24, Paul writes, But if you bear the name Jew or someone or a true believer of God and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having a law or in the law the embodiment of knowledge, and of the truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blaspheme among the Gentiles. Because of you, just as it is written. 
well, if we're living for good works, it'll be hard for them to make that statement. Right? If we're actually doing what we're supposed to be doing, it's going to be hard for them to call us hypocrites. We often, it's often said that, that Paul and James are in opposition of each other when it comes to works and faith. In Romans 3.28, it says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That's what Paul says. Now listen to what James says. James says in James 2.24, You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. These seem kind of contradictory, right? What's the deal here? Well, we need to look closely at the context of these passages. And we do, we're going to see that they don't contradict each other at all. We're going to see that they're talking about two different things. Because Paul's talking about how one is made right with God. And one's made right with God uh, through faith in Christ, apart from works. James is talking about something different. James is talking about, not about justification, but about proclamation. James is talking about the guy who says he's a Christian, but doesn't back it up the way that he really lives. And James says that he's deceived. He doesn't really have faith. In James chapter 2, verses 14 through 24, James says this, What use is it, my brethren, if somebody says they have faith, they're making a proclamation of faith. They're saying, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, but they have no works. Can his faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so faith, if it has works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one and you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? If we go around making professions that we're a Christian but we don't back it up with our works, what good is that, James is saying? And then he gets into the illustration of Abraham. The Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. When did he do that? Well, that was before he was circumcised. That was before he was told to sacrifice Isaac on the altar. It was before the giving of the law. None of those works made Abraham right with God. All they did was prove that Abraham was right with God. They evidenced his faith. So our works need to adorn the message and make it more beautiful to the hearer. Number two, our, our good works glorify God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism it asks questions about the believer. And the, and the first question it asks is this. It says, what is man's chief end? You know, what, what is man supposed to do in this world? And the answer is, is man is supposed to glorify God and enjoy him all of his days. The number one purpose that we've been put here on earth is to glorify God. 
that's why he's created us in his image. Right? God has created us in his image so that we could put his image on display. You know, have you ever thought about this? What, what does it mean to glorify God? What is God's glory? God's glory is the sum total of his attributes. It's, it's all of who God is. And so if, if we're going to glorify God, it, it's, it's, we're going to make those known. We're, we're going to live in a way that displays those attributes and the character of God so people could see it. We're putting God on display. First Peter 2.12 says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of your visitation. John 15.8, Jesus says this, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, so prove to be my disciples. If we're attached to Christ, we're going to bear a lot of fruit, and that fruit, that good works, is going to display who God is. It's going to glorify God. Point number three, our good works silence our critics. Silence our critics. In First Peter 2.15, Peter writes, For such is the will of God, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. God's will is that we do what is right, and as we do that, foolish men, you know, won't be able to mock God. They won't be able to mock us. They won't be able to blaspheme. You know how to silence a critic? Be good, right? Critics shut up when, when you start doing really well. Matthew Stafford, a few years ago, he had a lot of critics. He's the quarterback now of the Rams, my favorite team. Before that, he was on the Lions. And he had all kinds of great stats for a quarterback. Passing yards, touchdowns, a great QBR, all of these stats. Right? But, but he had a whole lot of critics because he, he was never really a part of a winning team. They would say things like, oh, yeah, but he can't win games, especially in the playoffs. He, he can't win a big game where he throws too many interceptions. He only has those passing stats because he's on a, a sorry team and they're losing, and so they're always passing, and the other team's in previous defense, and so he's able to rack up all these yards. They would say all this stuff, all these critics constantly talking about it. Well, you know what? Last year they won the Super Bowl, and, and now what, you know what the critics are saying about Matthew Stafford? Absolutely. We're talking about him as one of the elite quarterbacks in the NFL. It's when we do well, when we win, right? It shuts the mouths of our critics. Even Jesus, whom the religious leaders hated, silenced his critics. They're constantly coming, trying to trip him up, trick him, trap him, criticize him. Until he, he finally silenced them. In Mark eleven twenty seven through 33, it says this. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and he began saying to them, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus says to them, I'll ask you one question, and you answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. 
And they began raising among themselves, saying, If we say it was from heaven, he's going to say, Then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. On another occasion, uh, in Luke chapter 20, it says this. It says, Now there came to him some of the Sadducees. Among the Sadducees, they said that there was no resurrection. Right? The, 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 the Sadducees, uh, they, they were the, uh, the liberals today. Right? They didn't believe in the supernatural parts of the Bible. Right? So they didn't believe that people actually could rise from the dead. They didn't believe that there would be a resurrection. And that's why they called the Sadducees, because they're sad, because they aren't going to rise from the dead. But they come to Jesus, and Jesus, and they start questioning Jesus and saying to him, Teacher, Moses wrote uh, for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he is childless, his brother should marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now there's seven brothers. And the first brother took a wife and died childless, and the second and the third married her. And in the same way, uh, all seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age married and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain that age into the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they can't even die anymore, because they're like angels, and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush, where he calls the Lord God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now he's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, for all live to him. And some of the scribes answered him and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. See, by Jesus' good answer, he silenced his critics. By doing what is right, we will silence our critics. Number four, our good works edify the body of Christ. Our good works are going to build up and equip the body of Christ. Pastor Bob often talks about how uh, a tree produces fruit, right? But he doesn't produce fruit for itself, right? You don't see an orange tree, you know, eating the oranges it produces, right? It produces fruit for other people. You know, God's given us spiritual gifts for the building up and the edification of the body of Christ, in other words, the, the whole point of God gifting us, God empowering us for service through the Holy Spirit is for the edification of the church, for building up of, of the bride of Christ, for building up of our brothers and sisters. You know, we're to serve one another so that we mutually grow. As I engage in service and exercise my gifts and step out in faith, God's going to meet me, he's going to empower me, he's going to stretch me, he's going to grow me so I could do better works. And at that same time, I'm ministering to you guys, and you guys are growing. And, and the whole body of Christ is being edified by these 
good works. So when we serve and we witness to the lost, we're numerically growing. The kingdom of God is expanding. Remember Jesus says, let your light shine before men so they see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Number five, our good works manifest thankfulness. They manifest thankfulness. The idea is is this, is that, that God saved us. Jesus came to the earth. He lived the perfect life. He died on the cross. He rose again. Now that's been applied to our life. We've been saved. We've been taken out of the pit of hell, and we've been seated in the, the heavenly realm. I mean, we've, we've been translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. It's absolutely amazing what God has done for us. So, so what do we do? What's our response? How do we say thank you to that? By doing good works. By doing what is right. Psalm 116, verses 12 through 14, Paul writes, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I shall pay my vows to the Lord. Oh, may may it be in the presence of all his people. 1 Peter 2.9 says this, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the way we say thanks for our salvation is living rightly. It's by producing good works. For letter C, fill in the word compensation. We're going to now look at the, the compensation for our good works. Romans 2, uh, verse 6 says, God will render to every man according to his deeds. Right? Uh, God's going to judge us by our deeds, by our works, by the things that we have done. And this is going to affect us in this life now, but also in, in the future judgment that is to come. You see, there's there's two kinds of judgments. So for number one, we need to fill in the words here and now. Our works affect the here and now. You see, in this present age, uh, we have what's called the, the law of retribution. Now, what is this law of retribution? It's it's the law of sowing and reaping. Right? You, you reap what you sow. In Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8, Paul says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man soweth, he shall also reap. For he that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. See, good works produce eternal life. It produces life with God. It produces communion with God, fellowship with God. But bad works produce corruption, decay, death. So our our, our works, the way that we live, have a real consequences in in this life and our ability to enjoy God, enjoy the blessings that God has for us in this life. If we do good works, we're going to enjoy more of that. If we do bad works, we're going to not enjoy that. We're going to enjoy the opposite of that. But it also is going to dictate the futures of both believers and non-believers. 
So it affects us now, right, in this life, but it's also going to affect our eternal future. So fill in uh, the futures of believers and non-believers. See, the Bible is clear that one day, every single person who has ever lived is going to have to stand before the judgment seat of God. They're going to have to give an account to God. The Bible is absolutely clear about this. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul writes, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. All right, we're going to stand before God, and God's going to recompense us for our works. Jesus said that, that these works are going to go down to the minutest detail. Even every careless word that has come out of our mouth is going to be judged, Jesus says. And this judgment, though, is going to happen in one of two places. And, and, and the decision is up to you which place you want to have this happen. You see, the Bible says the unregenerate, the person who rejects Christ, who doesn't receive the gospel, that this, this judgment's going to happen at a place called the Great White Throne Judgment. And this is where the God's going to open the books, and, and these books contain every deed, every little word that you've ever said, every thought you've ever thought, every single little detail about you, and he's going to judge you by what's in these books. And we've already talked about how there's no amount of good that you could do to produce the right standing with God. Right? So, so you're going to fall up short. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, describes this white throne judgment. It says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose the face of the earth and heaven fled away, and there was no found." But there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of these things which were written in the books, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in them. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake. What's really interesting to me is this is this is how unbelievers want to be judged. They want to be judged by their works. Remember every person I ask of witnessing, hey, how are you going to get to heaven? What makes you think that God's one day is going to let you in to heaven? Well I'm a good person. I do more good works than bad works. You see, God's going to condescend himself and say, yeah, that's what you want to judge? That's what you're counting on to get into heaven? I'll, I'll do that. It's just not going to work. The only thing that's going to work is having your name written in the Lamb's book of life, and that comes by faith, by exercising faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the unbelievers have their judgment for their works at the great white throne judgment. Believers, their judgment is, is the complete opposite. It, it really is. Romans 8.1 says, For there is now therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Right? Our judgment isn't for that. It has, it has nothing to do with it. It's not for salvation. You see, God's going to judge us for rewards. 
He's going to look at our life, and He's going to evaluate everything that we've ever done, and He's going to look for things that He could reward us, eternally reward us for our faithfulness, for our right motives, for our good works. This is what's the bean seed of Christ. Take the Olympics, right? Everybody competes, and the people who compete really well, they get to stand on a podium, and the judge comes and rewards them for the way that they competed. That's the picture of the bean of seed. You see, when we compete through this life, when we run our race, and and, and we produce good works, we're going to stand before Christ. And he's, the judge is going to come, and he's going to reward us for these good works. And Paul says that because of this, that it was his goal to please God. Second Corinthians 5.9, he says, Wherefore we labor that we present, present or absent, we may be accepted by him. We may please him. Other translations say. Everything that Paul did was in light of that day, that one day I'm going to stand before God and I'm going to be judged and I want everything that God has for me. I want every reward. I want every blessing. I don't want to miss out on one ounce of the good things that God has for me. So I'm doing everything I can now to produce good works so I could receive that. You see, we think about this, or we do this, on a smaller scale all the time, right? There's something that we want, um, and and so we forego pleasures now, and and, and we work extra hard, and and we save the money, and we make sacrifices in that so that in the future we could buy this thing that we really want. Maybe it's a house. Maybe it's a car. Maybe it's a a PlayStation 5 or something. I I, I don't know what it is, right? But, But we don't mind doing that for some temporal thing. Paul's saying, I do that for eternity. <laughs> I live my life that way because I'm going to receive rewards and, and, and they're going to affect all of eternity. And I want the best that, that, that Christ has for me. See, that's the perspective that Christ was, or Paul was living with. That's the, the perspective God wants us to have about our works. A few points of application and, and we'll be done. Uh, point number one, press on. Work for the Lord. Right? I mean, that's the obvious ap- uh, application here. It is, hey, let's start doing good works, right? We want to please God. We want everything that God has for us. Colossians 3, verses 23 and 24 says this. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord, rather than for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. You see, so you know, you know how you want to have the right rewards? You, you know how we do this? It, it, it's simple. We just realize that everything that we're doing, we're really working for, for God. We're really working for Christ. When you go to work, you're not working for your boss. You're working for Christ. When, when you come and serve at the church, you're not you know, serving to please whoever's in charge of that ministry, you're, you're serving for Christ. You know, when you're doing chores around the house, you're not doing it for your spouse or the people you live with, you're doing it for Christ. 
And if we could keep that mentality and that mindset, then we're going to do everything, you know, for the right motive and with the right heart, with a good attitude, and we're going to earn those rewards. Application number two. Work to bless others. Right? Work to bless others. In 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19, it says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Here it is. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share storing up for themselves a treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. In Ephesians 4, verse 28, Paul says this, He who steals must steal no longer, but must rather labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with those who are in need. Paul's saying when you go to work, you're not only working for the Lord, but you're earning a paycheck so that you could bless other people. And if we could live with that focus, imagine the good works that are going to follow us. When we're not focused on ourselves, but when we're focused on making the lives of the people around us better, we're going to constantly be doing good works. Lastly, we need to pray for each other's works. In Colossians 1, verses 9 and 10, it says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Are, are, are you praying for your brother and sister's service to God? I, I question how often we pray for our own service to God. I know I don't do that enough. And I definitely don't pray for my friends and my brothers and sisters' service to God the way God wants me to. But when we are praying for them, now we're entering in that work with them through prayer. And we're both doing good works. We're both earning rewards. So I, I hope through all this we see that we, we need to have the right relationship between faith and works. But God wants us to have good works. Working needs to be a part of our theology. Faith without works is dead. God gives us a faith that works, a faith that, that affects the things and the people around us. What, what did Jesus do when he came to earth? Well, he did works. He ran around and he healed people. He, he blessed people. He, he ministered to people. That's all he did. And now if he's moved into your body and he's living and moving and working through you, what do you think that's going to produce? going to produce good works. Amen? Last verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. 
Paul, this is the, 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 the chapter on the resurrection. This whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, is about the resurrection and the reality that Christ died, or died and rose. And because Christ rose, that we're going to rise as well. The reality that we're going to live beyond this life, that we're going to have an eternal life with God. And, and it's going to be different. It's going to be awesome. And Paul says this at the end of the chapter. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. It's not in vain in the Lord. What you do for God is not in vain. It's not worthless. It's not, not useful. God's going to use it for his glory and for your good. Amen? So, God, I thank you that you've saved us. You put your spirit in us. You're working through us, Lord. And I pray that we would just give more of our heart, more of ourselves to you, Lord. That we would live a life that is prioritized by doing good works, by working and in, in, in living to please you, to, to, to doing deeds and service that people see it and, and, and glorify you. Brings people to you, that people would know that you are the Lord. I pray that we'd be others focused, that we would focus not on our comfort, not on our needs, Lord, but on serving and, and meeting the needs of others. Lord, I pray that we would live in, in light of eternity, that one day we're going to stand before you and, and give an account for the things that we did, what we did with the resources that you've given us. Lord, and I pray that there would be abundant good works from us, Lord. You'd have many reasons to reward us on that day. That none of us would shrink back in shame because we wasted opportunities. We wasted our life not performing good works. So fill us with your spirit. Lord, forgive us for the things that we've wasted. Lord, and may we live to please you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.